This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. What is the why that drives today's most successful business leaders? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with entrepreneurs on their life's work, legacy, and the greater meaning of it all. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Emma Ackerman, personal finance reporter at Market Watch. And today with me is Gary Cunningham, the outgoing president and CEO of Prosperity Now, which is a national organization based in Washington, D.C. that advocates for racial and ethnic economic justice. Hi, Gary. Welcome. And thanks for being here. Well, Emma, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Of course. So, As you know, it has been three years since George Floyd was murdered during an arrest in Minneapolis, Minnesota that was captured on cell phone footage that stunned and outraged the nation. Then Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who was later convicted on murder and manslaughter charges, could be seen pressing his knee into George Floyd's neck as he cried out that he couldn't breathe, while three other officers, former officers, who were later found guilty of federal civil rights violations, failed to intervene. The days and weeks after that murder were marked by protests worldwide and corporate government and personal pledges for advancing racial justice. Floyd was black and Derek Chauvin, his killer, was white. New York Times reported that Black Lives Matter was likely the largest movement in American history at the time. But while many may recall one of the chief demands made in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, that governments should defund the police or among other measures, West discussed these days is what advocates were saying that that funding should go toward instead, which was social programs, housing, healthcare, and more. The lack of funding for such initiatives in Black communities was part of George Floyd's life too. He had grown up in a housing project in Houston situated in a segregated neighborhood where opportunities were limited and he had health issues. Gary, what do you remember about what local governments, political leaders, and businesses were pledging in 2020 at the time? And did you start to see that impact immediately at Prosperity Now? Yeah, um, well, there's been uh, different social movements throughout this country, uh, uh, not just George Floyd, but uh, you go back to 1992 when there was riots in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, You could go back to 1964 uh, or you could go back to the turn of the century where there have been both uh, riots and and, uh, I'd say social rebellion against a system that has created structural economic barriers for some uh, and allow other, others through the uh, through the cracks, if you Someone will. Someone is at the front door. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, part of what's happening here, and I grew up right uh, in that spot, meaning my grandmother's church is right there on the corner of 38th and 4th, or at 38th and Chicago, right where George Floyd was murdered. The history of police violence in Minneapolis is a long history. Uh, I was uh, subject to that that history myself uh, as a as a youth in Minneapolis. Uh, was a uh, beat up and arrested for no reason. So this was is a common occurrence for African Americans uh, throughout, not just in Minneapolis but throughout the country. Uh, and what we've seen since then is a lot of pledges, uh, but not much substance. Meaning. 
the changes that have occurred since then. There have been some local changes uh, and some cities have done a lot uh, to change their policing practices uh, to get uh, to actually ensure that they're not uh, treating one group differently than others. Uh, but you haven't seen a whole lot on the national scale at this point. Uh, and, and we actually do need a national solution and not just a local solution to the issue of police violence. With regards to all of the pledges that you mentioned earlier, these uh, various pledges that have uh, come out from both corporations and uh, uh, foundations and, and, and other areas, uh, I would say that uh, the impact of that has been marginal at best. Uh, Prosperity Now hasn't seen a huge influx of additional resources uh, uh, in terms of these uh, addressing these issues. Uh, but I think organizations that are led by people of color, there's a study that was done uh, by uh, Hope Community in Mississippi that showed across the country uh, for uh, organizations focused on financial inclusion that, uh, that, uh, that not a whole lot's changed. And if they're led by a person of color, they receive a lot less funding than organizations that are uh, uh, led by whites. Uh, and so we see this uh, uh, kind of dynamic that continues. And these are the structural barriers of racial economic systems that have been operating for years and years. Wow, that, that study sounds really interesting. I mean, on the, on the corporate level, right, the Washington Post reported in 2021 that the country's top 50 public companies and their foundations had altogether committed at least 50 billion to advancing racial justice in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And much of that commitment was based in loans and mortgages from banking giants that acknowledged the racial wealth gap and the impacts of red wedding and housing discrimination. And then the following year, McKinsey said that as of October 2022, the amount of money pledged by corporations had grown to 340 billion. Additionally, on the government level, President Joe Biden issued an executive order on advancing racial equity almost immediately after taking office and CDFIs also got an injection of cash. And then there were government spending initiatives at the same time that took place after George Floyd's murder, like the American Rescue Plan, American Rescue Plan of 2021 that were crafted with racial justice measures in mind, even if they weren't explicitly about George Floyd's murder. What did we get right in all of this, if anything? Yeah, well, that that was a lot. And I think we got a lot of things right within that equation. I think if you look at uh, the expanded uh, resources that uh, community development financial institutions have received, uh, and these are alter these are mission driven lenders in communities throughout the country that actually serve uh, a lot of uh, black communities and uh, Latino Hispanic communities throughout the country. And by adjusting the uh, Paycheck Protection Program so that it actually was more targeted uh, for uh, low-income businesses, that did a lot to change the equation. I think the child care tax credit uh, was a number one things that came out of the Recovery Act that really made a difference. It moved more children out of poverty in Black communities and in uh, Latino Hispanic communities than anything that we've seen uh, uh, in terms of a poverty movement. Uh, so that was a, a big thing that happened. But what also happened was that when they had a chance to reauthorize that child care, care tax credit, they didn't. Uh, and so we're spending more in, on war and uh, uh, the military industrial complex than we are on our people in America. 
Uh, and that's that's shameful. And we need to change that around because we won't, as a country, be able to uh, thrive. Uh, we won't be able to compete internationally. Uh, we won't be able to maintain our standard of living in this country unless we invest in our people. And that really begins on the opportunities for uh, children, black and brown children throughout this country uh, to uh, participate fully in the American dream. And asking because I genuinely don't know myself, did did corporations get behind advocating for the expansion of the child tax credit in the way that they got behind advocating for increased lending in marginalized communities? Uh, well, you know, children always get left out because they're the ones that don't have the advocates at the same level as other interests uh, in our society. And so we've seen, you know, uh, more resources going into building stadiums than we see in actually investing in our children in, in America. Uh, and so it depends on, you know, uh, how much resources you have and who you can actually get to pay attention to your issues. There is, uh, there have been movements that have happened in this country for so we could take the investment in social security as an example that actually transformed how uh, uh, senior citizens actually uh, have, have, have lived and prospered in, in our country. So we've seen big changes occur, uh, but those groups actually had to organize and make it happen. It didn't happen because the, all of a sudden somebody just out of the goodness of their heart said, oh, let's do the right thing here. Uh, and so the same thing is true with the corporate sector. Uh, the corporate sector, on one hand, uh, has done a great job with their uh, with their philanthropy in many ways, uh, but on the other hand, uh, they're uh, lobbying Congress not to raise taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So you have this kind of dual kind of dynamic going on within our country with regards to who gets what. So if we took the tax system as an example of that, meaning right now our tax system is structured so that if you're wealthy already, you actually pay less taxes. You pay less into that system than if you are a low-income person. I think everybody knows the statement by Warren Buffett that his secretary plays less taxes than he does. Uh, and so we have an upside-down tax system that uh, is supposed to encourage opportunity, but, at, but for everyone, but only it uh, builds wealth for certain groups of people that already have wealth today. So these are some of the imbalances that we have in our system. And so it's not like it's, you know, you just look at it as black and white. It's very complex and there's nuances within the context of that. So Prosperity Now, as an example, works with corporations on all kinds of different projects throughout the country and doing some great work. But those projects and programs aren't at the scale necessary to change the game. Bill Doherty uh, 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 and others uh, have, who have written on this, William Doherty uh, and others have written on this subject, really talk about the trillions of dollars that it would really take to balance the scales on the racial, uh, economic, and ethnic uh, economic wealth divide in this country. And so, you know, you could put in, you know, a couple of million dollars and say you're doing a great thing, but the fundamental structures have to change in order for uh, everybody to do well. And I think there's an agreement in America. There's a fundamental agreement that if you work hard, you do the right thing, that you should be able to move up the ladder of economic opportunity in America. I think that across conservative, uh, liberal frames, I think everybody agrees on that point. 
Uh, and so what we see is that we're not living up to this, uh, what America is supposed to be, what America is for, which is opportunity for all. Thank you. And I want to talk about taxes, of course. Who doesn't want to talk about taxes? Um, but I have to remind folks, please uh, submit questions if you uh, if you have any. Uh, feel free to submit them live so we can answer them. We've got one from Michael so far. And I, Gary, I, I'll let you take this one because I'm not quite sure. I don't have all the, all the resources and context to understand what this question is about. But Michael asks, can we make it easier to get individual development accounts? Now, Gary, do you know what that means? I do, I do. And uh, Prosperity Now spearheaded uh, programs for individual development accounts. That means this is an investment uh, by the government uh, in an individual so that they can actually take that account uh, and they can invest in opportunity for themselves. So wealth generating opportunities. So they can take a, get a matching fund that gets set up so that you, it gets matched by the government, be it state, local, or federal government. That match, then you can use, you can't just use it for anything. You can only use it for wealth building opportunities. So if you wanted to start a business, you could use it for that. If you want to go to college, you could use it for that. If you want to uh, invest in uh, your education, you could use it for that. And so these individual development accounts that uh, were, were uh, started many years ago, are one way to get there so that everybody can get opportunity. Today, uh, Prosperity Now leads one of the largest networks of, of children's savings accounts in the country. And we work with organizations all over the country, state and local governments on children's savings accounts. And we know that when we invest uh, a few thousand dollars in a child's savings account, that that child has a four times greater chance of matriculating through college. So just think of how we could have a multiplier effect by investing in these children. In addition, we're uh, very interested in what we call baby bonds, uh, which is, uh, is a bill that, uh, that, uh, uh, that Senator Booker and, and Representative Presley have uh, that is active right now in Congress that every child in America get, could get a baby bond. And so when they got of age, they got 18, they were already thinking about investing in themselves. They're already thinking about their, their own financial security. And then they can invest in uh, uh, actually contributing to uh, productivity within society by investing in their own wealth generation. And so we're really uh, uh, gung-ho. We really think this is happening. And it's catching on all over the country. So Connecticut, uh, uh, folks in Washington State and D.C. and other places throughout the country are implementing baby bond strategies because they see if they don't invest in their young people, they don't give them hope and opportunity and, and the path forward, then they actually are creating more and more of the issues that are related to the police violence that you raised earlier. Uh, because if I don't see if I can really participate in our society from a fundamental level, uh, then uh, you know, you're gonna have more crime. You're gonna have more violence within uh, communities uh, that haven't been able to participate uh, historically in our system uh, that's supposed to be for everyone. 
Wow, it's so fascinating to hear about that movement. Um, thank you, Michael, for opening up that conversation and for asking that question. I hope that that was helpful. And I did promise we would get back to taxes. So I did want to ask, I mean, one of the signs for me of this conversation about racial economic justice having a long tail, a three-year long tail, is the IRS acknowledging systemic racism and disparities in the tax system. You know, we saw last week that the IRS sent a letter to the Senate Finance Committee saying Black taxpayers are more likely to be audited than white taxpayers. And I know that Prosperity Now and you have this long legacy of specifically calling out the U.S. tax system as a driver of wealth inequality. How do you see or how have you seen lawmakers incorporating tax code reform into racial equity measures you know, in the past three years? And how do you see that working moving forward? Do you think that that's a focus? Well, I think the Biden administration in particular, and I wanna uh, really uh, call out uh, uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen and her staff for actually doing the research and the work to say, hey, there's we've got an unequal system that's not working well for everyone. Uh, and and really call it out with data, live real data that says, hey, if you're black, you are going to get you have a greater chance of being audited audited than if you were white. Uh, that is so profound, and it hasn't happened. Meaning, you know, that data has been sitting there for years and years and years, and it hasn't happened. So I want to applaud them for doing that. At the same time, what is the solution? Meaning, that's a structural problem. Right. There's reasons underneath that for why those folks are getting our, you know, black people, my people are being selected at a greater rate. And then the question becomes, what are the things that need to be done to correct that so that we have a system that's fair and just for everyone? Uh, and so, again, here, you know, another you can look at any of these systems. You can look at healthcare. You could look at how lending is happening. Federal Reserve did a, uh, has done numerous studies showing that if you're a African-American and you go for a loan uh, in, uh, in comparison to your a white colleague of the same, everything is the same, you actually get less of a loan than that white colleague would get or that white person that's in business. That's not the America that we want to see. The America we want to see is that I've got the same credentials, et cetera, and that I should be able to get the same treatment uh, in any of these systems. So you can look at uh, all of these systems and you can see the same kind of pattern that occurs based on identity, based on skin pigmentation. Uh, and that's what we're trying to deal with. It doesn't mean there hasn't been progress. We've made a lot of progress in America over many years, and many people have sacrificed for that project progress, and many whites have helped contribute to making that progress happen. At the same time, when we look at black wealth today, and Robert Putnam in his book, Upswing, uh, uh, it did an analysis uh, that actually black wealth is, uh, black people are worse off today uh, from a wealth perspective than they were in 1960. Mm. Think about that. Now, there's reasons for that. There's reason, underlying reasons for that. And part of the reasons for that was public policy that occurred in that time. So since 1960, at the, in 1960, and most people don't realize that, African-Americans had the highest marriage rate in this country. Mm. Did you know that? I did. Yeah, they had the highest of those in the marriage age cohort. We had the highest marriage rate in the country. 
And then public policy occurred within this country and, and economic factors also contributed. And part of the reason that we were doing so much better then is that we had moved from the South and Jim Crow and treatment and had many of us had moved to the North and that created an economic boom because then you were working at, uh, my grandfather worked for uh, 40 years at a, a factory uh, raised six kids and uh, had a house and a car and uh, on $9,000 a year. So, you know, at that time you had that. And then, you know, you had welfare policy occur uh, where black men weren't allowed to live in the, the household. That was one of the factors that Moynihan pointed out many years ago, Daniel Moynihan, Senator Moynihan. Uh, and then you had um, also a disappearing of those jobs, which uh, Dr. William Julius Wilson at Harvard University writes a lot about was the main factor was you had jobs disappearing that uh, were created, that created this wealth in the community. And then you had white backlash to black progress after the civil rights movement. And then you had the war on drugs, the war on crime, the war on black people uh, that actually created mass incarceration in this country. And Democrats and Republicans were a part of the movement of mass incarceration. So I don't want to act like it's all of, on one side of the fence. It, both parties played a role in the mass incarceration where over a third of black men have been incarcerated within this country, more than that are, were in college at the time that mass incarceration that's still going on and being perpetuated today. So these are complex issues, right? And we've all played a part in getting us here. And we all have to play a part in getting us out of the current situation so that all of us, no matter where you live in this country, no matter where you're at, that you can really fully participate in the economic opportunities of this country. And we are all better off when we do. And I mean, you, you've described the, pro the progress of the past three years as you know, relatively marginal. Um, what, what promises did we fail to live up to? And do you see that kind of backlash that you described happening today as a result to that marginal progress? Well, I did want to say one thing before we move to that point, and that is uh, Paul Klugman uh, out of uh, uh, New York Times today had an article that showed that actually black male unemployment has dropped to levels that we've never seen before. So more black men are working than ever before in this country. Uh, and this question of work requirements and all of these things that are being talked about as the debt ceiling issue, uh, actually many of the people that were left out of the economy are now a part of it. Now the question of wages and, and wage distribution comes into play here because you don't know what those jobs specifically are. But anybody that wants to work is working in our economy and that's huge. That's a huge positive thing that has happened uh, in the last number of years, uh, that is transformational. Meaning if people have work, they have dignity, and they're able to uh, actually contribute both to themselves and to their families, they do better. Uh, and then we actually talk about actually uh, really creating families that are working uh, and are thriving in America as opposed to families that are struggling. And this isn't just due to race, meaning that white families white middle-class families are struggling too. And we need to say that. And we need to say that we have a common interest uh, with uh, what happens to African-Americans and Latino people and 
uh, working class white people in this country with regards to us all lifting ourselves up out of economic stagnation to economic opportunity. Thank you. And and on, are you able or willing to comment on any of the failures that you think that? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, you know, part of the struggle is uh, what I call, and William Julius Wilson as well calls institutional enrichment. Meaning that people in the current institutions are benefiting from the system that we've created. Uh, and so trying to change these systems internally becomes very difficult when the people that are benefiting from the current system uh, are part of it. And so you start, you know, you look at education system as an example, and I was an associate administrator of Minneapolis Public Schools for a while. And I can tell you that some of those systems are stuck because people are actually doing better themselves uh, than, the, than the kids. Uh, in those systems, as an example. And so trying to change and shift those systems in a very liberal place like Minneapolis was very difficult and still difficult. Uh, you have, uh, you know, a majority of kids that are structurally segregated, and I'm just using the Minneapolis school system to this day in Minneapolis, but it's all over the country where you have still the segregated systems that uh, we thought we had done away with with changes in the civil rights laws are still existing. Why is it? Because, you know, many parents uh, uh, actually want to maintain uh, the kind of systems that they have that uh, keep some kids out of their schools and ghettoize those kids in other schools. Uh, and you see it all over the country, but in Minnesota, it's pretty acute, given that they're second or third in the nation on racial economic uh, injustice. Uh, in America, uh, but it's all over the country. And so these systems have morphed to maintain segregation in different ways uh, in their systems, right? So they actually morph to maintain power. Uh, and this is really about power. Who has power to change the structures? That's what policing is about. It's about power. Where do we put the most police, right? Where, where are we over-policing people? And where are we under policing people? And so you started this conversation about this issue of, uh, you know, uh, in part, uh, you know, defunding the police as an example, which I thought was a terrible uh, uh, kind of slogan. But the, underneath that was how do we change the system in a way that it works well for everyone? And so this question of, you know, everybody wants to live in a safe, decent community. I haven't met anybody that says, oh, I want to be robbed tomorrow. I want, you know, I want folks doing drugs on the corner or something like that. I have not met anybody that I could think of that wants that in their community or wants violence or gun violence in their community. Uh, yet, uh, here we stand today in America with gun violence at a uh, rate that we, uh, I mean, every week we're seeing murders and uh, mayhem within our communities. Our young kids are being killed. 98% uh, of Americans think we need to do something to change our gun laws, and we don't do it. And that's about power, right? That's about power. That isn't about taking somebody's right to a gun away. It's really about, hey, how do we do this in a responsible way? And you go to Canada, right next door, their level of gun violence is like a, a very minute level compared to what our gun violence was. We need to do something to change the system 
But again, I go back to this institutional enrichment and people benefiting from the current system, even though a majority of Americans say we should do things differently. So again, you could look at any of these structural systems from healthcare to uh, 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 banking uh, to education, and you can see these disparities. And people try to say, well, there's something different about those people. There's some cultural thing or something like that. But no, it's really not. It's about a structure that has been working well for some, and some have been benefiting, and others haven't been able to benefit. And we, it's not sustainable. We talk about climate change, not sustainable, the current system we're using, just like the issue of racial uh, inequality that we've created in America isn't sustainable for any of us. So we all need to get on the same bandwagon and says, hey, if you do the right thing, if you work hard and you put apply yourself, you should be able to succeed in America. And I think we all agree with that. Thank you. And we're getting a couple of questions in from our listeners. Thank you for submitting those. Uh, one comes from Richard, again, wanting to tap your expertise and my lack thereof of individual development accounts. Uh, Richard <laughs> asks, is, is there an age limitation for individual development accounts? For example, can I get one for my 25-year-old grandson? Would you happen to know? Uh, well, right now it's not uniform. There are still some places that have individual development accounts in the country, but actually we've never been able to get a universal um, and targeted approach to uh, individual development accounts. And the programs that were broad-based have somehow receded, meaning they're not as, as strong. So some individual states have still have those. Uh, so, so if you're, I don't know where you live, Richard, uh, but you may or may not be able to participate in an individual development account program. However, if you're interested in moving that agenda, uh, please go to our website, prosperitynow.org, uh, and you can comment, uh, you can look up individual development accounts, uh, and you can actually be part of the movement to restore individual development accounts as a movement in this country to change the dynamics of how wealth is distributed. Interesting. Thank you again, Michael and Richard, for starting this individual development account conversation. Um, apologies for my inability to participate in it. And uh, Neil, asked, Neil asked a question that I think you might find interesting, Gary, which is uh, Jason Riley's book, Please Stop Helping Us, points out how much better economically the Black community was without liberal welfare policies. With marriage and economics and student achievement was much better off. That in, in uh, Neil's words, do you believe he was misguided in making the assertion that liberal policies contributed to this? Well, I, you know, I, I don't think I've read the book, so I won't comment on the book per se. I do think uh, uh, the kind of compromises that got made around welfare policy in this country did contribute to the dynamic of, of uh, the dissolution of the Black family in many ways. Uh, I do think that uh, uh, policies on uh, incarceration that were led by some uh, uh, President uh, Clinton and uh, uh, et cetera also created, uh, uh, and our, our current President jo uh, Joseph Biden was part of that as well, did lead to a mass incarceration of Black men, which obviously is going to have a huge impact on family structure uh, within our community. So I'd say those things are true. At the same time, I, do, I don't think it's a Democrat or Republican issue or a conservative or a liberal issue. The, the policies that are coming, that have come from 
the conservative uh, group as well has had huge damaging effects on uh, people of color. And the compromise I talk about welfare policy as an example was a compromise that was made in part by uh, more conservative members who at the time were Democrat, but they were conservatives uh, uh, because the change hadn't happened. Uh, and the whole issue around the Southern strategy uh, where uh, you know the strategy to get elected was to denigrate black people uh, came out of the Republican party. So you can see both of these parties have played a role uh, in uh, the current dynamic. And so I just want to be honest, uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that both parties, both elites in both parties have played a role in the compromises made that have damaged our community. Now, I would argue that uh, Jim Crow and, and other uh, kind of discriminating practices actually came out of a more conservative place. So when people talk about we need to return to yesteryear or to when things were better, uh, et cetera, uh, that, that they weren't better for us. Uh, they weren't better for black people. They weren't better for Latino people. They weren't better for American Indian people. Uh, they might've been better for a segment of the population that was majority white, but it wasn't better for us. So to talk in that language and, and, and to talk about maintaining Confederate uh, uh, symbols, et cetera, et cetera, that is not a better society for me uh, you know, uh, uh, or my children or my grandchildren. And I'm just using myself as an example. That's, that's all of us. Uh, Pew Charitable Trust came out with a, a, a poll uh, uh, at the last year, at the end of last year, I believe it was. Uh, and it, it, it asked African-Americans, well, you know, do they believe that this, you know, do, do they believe what's going on that we can get there, meaning we can get to a full and equitable society for Black people in this country? And most didn't believe that that to be, could, they know what needs to be done. They just don't have any faith that it can be done under the current structures that we have. And that's a shame, meaning we should have a society where everybody believes they can participate. So to blame like, oh, this is the conservatives or the liberals, et cetera, I think that's a false argument. And we need to start designing and developing policies that work equally well for everyone. And in order to do that, we need to have universal, uh, uh, we need to have universal approaches, meaning everybody benefits, that are targeted to groups based on how they're situated to opportunity. So you could be somebody in a poor region of the country that's majority white, and your constituents or your people would benefit. And you could be in places where it was majority people of color and people of color would benefit. That's when we talk about targeted, uh, uh, you know, that's what we mean uh, that everybody needs to benefit, but some groups aren't situated to opportunity in the same way. And if we could design that, uh, then we could get out of this kind of zero sum politics that we talk about these issues within that don't actually get us anywhere. Thank you, Gary. And thank you, Neil, for asking that question. Yeah, this you. is all the time that we, uh, this is all the time that we have for today, but thank you again for being here, Gary. And thanks to the audience for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow. Uh, Lord Mayor of London, Nicholas Williams, will be joining us on Barron's Live. He is at the center of a battle to make sure the city remains a global financial hub amid fierce competition from overseas. In financial news, Jeremy Chan will speak with him about how to keep London on top, how to boost its capital market.
certificates and what it's like to coronate a new king. Thanks for listening. Be well and have a wonderful rest of your day. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.